The sweet part is that these last few verses, I mean, they bring it home. They are beautiful and packed with power to shape our lives together as a church. Uh, If you don't have a copy of the Bible, uh, let me go ahead and tell you that we've provided copies within arm's reach for you uh, that are meant for you to have in front of you today. So do grab one and look in the the table of contents for the book of John. That'll get you to John chapter 17, where we'll be this morning. Uh, But we've, we've also included them there because we'd love for you to take it. We want it to be our gift to you if you don't own a copy of the Bible. Because in this Bible, we find our hope. It's the message that we believe God has given to us about his son who has come so that we can have life through him. And all our hope is is rooted here. And we want you to have it so that you can see what we've seen. And we'd love to talk to you more about that after today. Friends, I want to begin by reading the verses that we'll consider this morning. And I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up in John 17, verse 20, and read through the end of the chapter. This is Jesus praying to his Father. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. If you knew that you had just 24 more hours left to live, what would you do with your time? A few years ago, somebody posted that question to an online message board and thousands of people weighed in with their answers. As you can imagine, many of the answers were, shall we say, quite colorful, not suited to a sermon intro such as this one. Many other answers weren't, uh, weren't serious at all and actually pretty funny. Somebody said that they would donate all their video games to charity. That's what they do with their final hours on earth. Somebody else said, I'd, just, I'd rob a bank just for the thrill, just to see if I could get away with it, even though I wouldn't get to spend any of the money. Somebody else said they'd write emails to their friends from the great beyond and send them on a delayed send, you know, to come like two weeks after the death, just to mess with them. Some other answers were were really serious and, and sad, very hopeless. One person said they'd go out into the woods or on a beach or a desert just to be completely alone, to think about the lack of meaning in life and the fact that their being gone would change nothing. I quote, I'd use the 24 hours just to reevaluate my life decisions, 
I'd meditate on the complexity of the nature around me and marvel at my trivial existence in the grand scale of reality, my insignificance in the cosmos. He figured that would help take the emotion out of his regrets. That's dark. Other folks were really super responsible. Like, uh, like this one guy who said he would withdraw all the money from his accounts, he would prepare all of his important paperwork, he would settle all of his loans and debts, and he would make a clear record of all of his passwords and leave it there as a packet on his desk. Most of the serious ones were fairly predictable. People said they'd spend time with their family and their friends. They'd get on the phone with the people they couldn't get to in person. They'd tell people how they really feel about them, even if they never had the courage to do it before. Someone just said, I'd, I'd eat my three favorite meals. <laughs> What'd your answer be? If you had 24 hours left, what would you do with your time? There are many amazing things about Jesus. John said he wrote this book to tell us what we needed to know so that we believe in him. He said, if anybody made a complete record of all the things Jesus said and did, the world couldn't hold all the books that would have to be written. But I chose what I chose. My highlight reel is so that you'd believe, so that you would trust your life to this man and believing in him have life in his name. There are many amazing things about Jesus, but surely Surely this right here belongs on the list. When Jesus knew that he was going to die, when he knew that he only had a few hours left to live, Jesus spent his last moments praying for you. And by you, I mean, if you're a Christian, I mean, I mean you. I do not pray, I do not ask for these only, verse 20, these in the room with me, my inner circle, my disciples. I don't just pray for them, Father, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you, 2,000 years later. And that, um, that stunning reality it raises the central question that we're gonna to try to answer today. What does Jesus want for you so badly that his desire for that thing crowded out the cross and its horrors in his own mind and heart the night that he died? What does he want so badly for all those who would believe in his name that his love and desire for that thing crowded out the weight of the cross, which surely also rested on his shoulders in these moments. This is going to be our third week in Jesus' prayer to his father in John 17. We've talked about this prayer as a, as a kind of stethoscope for hearing the heartbeat of Jesus. And now, here at the climax of the prayer... What does Jesus want for his friends? What does he want for you? It all boils down to this. He wants us to be one. He prays, verse 21, that they, that's us, may all be 
one. Three points this morning, guys, all of them questions to guide us into the goodness of this text. The first question is the one we're going to spend almost all of our time on. Question number one, what unity matters to Jesus? Right here at this moment of truth, his mind and his heart is focused on his prayer for us. And he's asking that we would be one, that we would be united. What unity matters to Jesus? so much that it could occupy his mind and his heart on this night. I think it's a a unity based on two things. And I want to show you these things from his prayer. They're not given so much in a one and uh, one, two order. They're more like threads that, that weave in and out of the prayer itself. Two things that you need to know about this unity Jesus is praying for. Two things that this unity he's praying for are going to, is, is based on the foundation for it. Thing number one, our union with Jesus. And number two, our hope for heaven. What unity matters to Jesus? So much that he'd pray for it on this night, a unity that's based on our union with him and our hope for heaven. Jesus prays for a unity among us that's based on our union with him. You can see this begin to come out in verse 21. Jesus says he's praying that, that all who would come to believe in him would be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. The unity he's praying for is something like the unity he has with his Father. Pull that thread even further. You can see it in verse 22. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. And it comes up again at the very end, verse 26. I made known to them your name. I'll continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. Now what's all this about? Jesus isn't praying that we would become God. The unity between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, it goes all the way down to their essence in a a mystery that is deep and wonderful and beautiful and key to all that we're hoping for as Christians. That's a unity that we can't share. It belongs to Him. There's a bright line that divides God, the Creator, and all all of his creatures, and that line never gets crossed. You never move from one side to the other. Jesus isn't praying that we would become God, but still, clearly, he is praying that that we would experience a unity with one another that flows out of a kind of unity with him. He's praying that we, as, as those who believe in his name, would be caught up into something that's eternal, beautiful, And binding together the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And here's what I think he has in mind. When a person becomes a Christian, they identify with Jesus. In the eyes of God, what's what's true of Jesus is now true of them. That's how God sees them. I think that's what Jesus has in mind in verse 22 when he says, The glory given to, to me, I've given to them. The Father gave it to me this visible greatness based on all that I am and all that I've done, and I'm giving it to them. So now it covers them too, even though they don't deserve it. I think Jesus has in mind the fact that his his perfect life becomes their perfect life if they trust in him. 
as if they were the ones who had obeyed God completely. And then his death that he's about to die, it becomes their death as if they died in punishment for all that they'd done wrong. And his standing before the Father, that becomes theirs too. So that when the Father sees them, what the Father sees is Jesus. And he's perfectly pleased with all of it. And holding it all together, all of this mysterious goodness is the, is the love of the Father for the Son. Verse 23, he wants the world to know that, that you, Father, love them even as you loved me. Same thing in verse 26. I made known to them your name. I, I told them what you're like, what you've done, so that the love with which you've loved me may be in them, so it'll spread through what they know of you now into their hearts and change them. And Jesus, all his followers now share in that love. That's what it means to be united to Jesus. All that's true about him is applied to you if you're with him. And being in Jesus, you are caught up with him, in him like a vehicle into this vortex of love that is God's own eternal life. I don't think we have to understand how all that works to see that that's what Jesus is saying is true and to be so grateful to him that our lives now are lived inside that vortex. That's a good place to be. I don't, I don't think there's any better example of what Jesus has in mind than the Apostle Paul. This kind of unity of, of, of him being in them and them being in him, being caught up into this, this new reality. I don't think there's a better example of that than, than, than the Apostle Paul. All through his letters, he talks about it. It's one of his favorite subjects, what it means to be in Christ. I, I think one of Paul's basic jobs on earth was to explain what Jesus meant in verse 23 when he said, I and them and you and me and that we get the glory that was given to Jesus. And Paul did that not just as some sort of ivory tower thinker. He did it, he did it from his own experience. He lived this reality. I think, I think the best example is Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, one of Paul's letters, he's writing about how he sees himself. And it's a before and an after chapter. He says, before, I had a resume everybody was jealous of. He says, I was... I was circumcised on the eighth day. In his world, that was a big deal. That was right on time. I was of the people of Israel, God's chosen people. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. That's one of the best of all the tribes. A Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee, he says. So committed to the law, I might as well have been blameless. I know those categories don't mean much to us, but they were, they were a big deal back in Paul's day. This was a resume that everybody would have envied. It's like, it's like he's chest pounding there. I'm Paul. Who are you? What's on your list? And it all builds to this, Paul says. Whatever gain I had, and I had a lot of gain, I count it as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage, good riddance. Why? Paul says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That's John 17. That's what Jesus is praying about right here. Not having a righteousness of my own, he says, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's John 17. The glory that I have, Jesus says, that I deserve, I've given to them. So it's theirs now. That's a righteousness that depends on faith. 
What I was before, it's all nothing, Paul says. Who I am now, it's all defined by Jesus and only by Jesus. He's everything to me and the most important thing about me. Now, let me bring this around to us. To our life together as our church. Remember what Jesus is praying for here. He's he's talking about the union of his people with him through faith. But But he's talking about that baked into a prayer for our unity with one another. Remember, it's all so that they may be one. I think what Jesus is basically asking his father is that all of his followers, including us, that all of us would see ourselves primarily in Jesus. Not for the schools that we went to or the jobs that we hold or the interests that take up our time or our personalities or whatever else might set us apart from each other. He's praying that the most important thing to us about who we are would be Jesus. And that united to Jesus, we'd be united to each other too. I wonder, friend, what's on your list? If you were writing your own Philippians chapter 3, And if you had to say, here's why I can have confidence in the flesh. Here are the things that make me stand out. What would be on your list? How much time do you spend thinking about and building toward and even projecting to the world an identity that's really just all yours? Have you ever thought that in doing that, it's more than just pride going on in our hearts? That that actually, that, that, that tendency we have cashes out to a threat to our unity as a church. As the more important your unique value is to you, the more likely you are to see yourself as different from, you'll need to see yourself as different from, as set apart from the others in your community. Can you say with Paul, it's all rubbish beside who Jesus is to me, for me, and who I am in him. Friends, you know, this is also why, why our, our statement of faith as a church is so important to our life together. Um, sometimes, sometimes you can hear even Christians talking about unity as something that's so important that we ought to be willing to sort of shave off some of the rough edges that might divide us from one another doctrinally so that we can all stay together as one. I hope you can see from what Jesus says here in John 17, that's not the kind of unity he has in mind. Like the, the kind of unity he has in mind, it has, has very specific content, a very specific view of who Jesus is that was handed down from his first apostles, from his disciples. We believe in his name through their word, through what they told us is true about him. That's specific. And, it's, and it only comes through specific faith in that specific word about who Jesus is. You have to want it for yourself to be part of this unity that, that, that Jesus is praying for. We're not after unity for unity's sake. And we're not after even a unity that's based on an appreciation of Jesus. I mean, there's a kind of unity that Christians share with Muslims and even with, with very secular people who see in Jesus a lot to be, to be celebrated. They see in him as a great teacher or a wonderful example of someone who just went for it and was true to their own beliefs all the way to the end, even when it cost them. That is not the unity that he's talking about here. That unity is not enough for him, shouldn't be for us. Who, who he is to us as a church has to be the foundation of our unity. That's why we have a, a statement of faith that we agree to. And, and 
we, we had just an unbelievably beautiful example of this just in our most recent members meeting. Uh, those of you who were there you know what I'm talking about. In our members meetings, uh, one of the things that we always do each time we meet as members uh, is, is bring in new members who want to join our church. And that involves them learning more about what our church is, is about, making sure that it fits with how they understand the Bible and making sure they agree with the statement of faith. And it involves elders meeting with them to talk to them about how they became a Christian and to hear how they understand who Jesus is, all making sure that our unity is based on him, on who he is to us. But my goodness, was it a beautiful members meeting where we took in, we took in Euro-Americans, we took in African-Americans, we took in an Indian-American brother, we took in several non-Americans, including two Brits and a brother from Spain, all in the same members meeting. Wonderful mix of people from all over who have one thing in common besides our Middle Tennessee zip coats. Christ is everything to us. Story after story from one of these friends after another in, included how they came to know Jesus as their only hope in life and in death. Some of, them, some of them have known of Jesus from their earliest memories because they were raised in Christian homes. Some of them were not raised in Christian homes and became Christians as adults. But you know what? All of them now stand on a foundation that is Jesus and their union with him as their only hope in life and in death. In this, in this Sunday school class that's been going on the last few weeks on unity and diversity, one of the lines that's come up a few times in the class is that we want diversity like that, a diversity that, that, has, that includes people from all over the map, not for its own sake, as enriching as it is to have friends who aren't like you, but because diversity is a kind of highlighter for our unity. Diversity is a way of underlining what we have in Jesus. Look at who this man is. Look at what he's done. Look at what we have in him that could bring all of these people together as one. It makes unity pop when we're brought together from all over. We pray for and long for diversity in our church because it is, it is so good to see how powerful a magnet Jesus is and how wonderful it is to share life together in his love. Jesus is praying for a unity that's based on our union with him, on who he is to us. But Jesus is also praying for a unity that's based on our hope for heaven. Not just who Jesus is to us now already, but what Jesus has promised to us for then. Look back at the text with me. Verse 24, Jesus prays to his father, Father, I desire, literally I will, that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I desire, I will that they whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Friends, Jesus is not changing subjects here. Overall, he's still praying for unity. He's just taking us one layer deeper into the foundation of the unity that matters to him. Another way to think about this is that he's praying here to his father for what he promised to his followers back in chapter 14. In chapter 14, he had been telling them that he was about to go away and they were burdened by that. They were scared about that. They didn't want it. They wanted to be with him. And he assures him in chapter 14, I'm only going so I can prepare a place for you. Then I'll come back, get you, take you with me so you can be with me where I am. I have to go first to bring you where I'm going. 
He, he knew what they couldn't yet know. That for them to be with him where he was going, he would have to go through the cross and then rise again to new life before they could be fit to live in that place with him and see him as he is. That's what he was going to do. That's what he'd come to earth to do. And now, right here, in these last moments with his father, bearing his heart before him, he's right back to what he's longing for most. Father, I desire that they whom you've given me may be with me where I am. This is the future that was on his mind when he faced the cross. This is the joy that was set before him that made him endure that shame without blinking. Writing about this prayer, a wonderful Scottish pastor named Sinclair Ferguson talks about how this prayer in a way echoes a prayer he'll pray in just a few hours time in the garden, waiting on the soldiers to come and arrest him, to beat him to humiliate him and then crucify him. Beneath it all, waiting as he knew that he was to absorb in his body and soul the full weight of God's wrath against sin. He knows that's what he's come to do. But he's human. Who would want to go through all of that? No one would. Of course he prayed to the Father, Father, let this cup pass from me. But in that prayer, he prayed, not as I will, not as I desire, but your will be done. Ferguson says, Jesus, Jesus prayed like that in the garden, not as I will, but as you will. Because he'd already prayed here. I will, I desire that they be with me where I am and see my glory that you've given me with the love with which you've loved me from before the foundation of the world. Jesus had to say, not as I will, but as you will in the garden facing the cross. Because this prayer, this will was stronger. I will that they be with me. Friends, all our hope is grounded in how badly Jesus wants to bring his people home. And in the meantime, our unity with each other is grounded in how badly we want to be there. Do you want to be where Jesus is? Do you want to see him in his glory? You know, you know your unity, our unity with other Christians now is a direct sign of how clearly this future is on our minds, of how deeply this future and our longing for it penetrates our hearts. Our unity now is a sign of how badly we wanna be with Jesus in heaven. John, the same John who wrote this gospel in his first letter in John chapter three, he says, anyone who has this hope of seeing him as he is one day, purifies himself now as he is pure. It weans us off of the things that we love more and long for more than heaven. It helps to, 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 to take our hearts, detach them from the siren songs and fading beauties of this world that will only disappoint us in the end. Another way to put John's point from that letter is that this hope for being with Jesus where he is, it's purging us from all sorts of the things that might divide us from each other things that have nothing to do with Jesus. 
things that have nothing to do with what he's promised us. What unity matters to Jesus? It's not just unity for unity's sake. It's a unity that's based on our union with him. Who is Jesus to us? And our hope for heaven, where is Jesus taking us? That's the unity that matters to Jesus. So question number two, why does unity matter to Jesus? Why is our unity with one another so important to him that he would spend these final moments praying for it? I'm sure there are many reasons that our unity matters to Jesus, but there is one reason that's on the top of his mind for him in this prayer. It comes out a couple of different times. I want to show you. Our unity matters to Jesus because it's through our unity that the world comes to know him. It's through our unity that other people get in on what we've come to see and enjoy in Christ. Another way to say it is our unity is how we fulfill our mission in the world. That's why it matters to him so much. Let me show you. Look, at, look back at verse 21. He's praying that they may all be one. Why? So that the world may believe that you've sent me. So that the world, those who don't yet know me, those who don't yet trust in me, so that they would come to believe that I am who I said I was. Same thing in verse 23. He's praying that they would be perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. When they're at one, the world knows there is a love in here that you can't miss. You got to get in on this love. Another way to say it, I guess, is that he, he sees our unity as an ad for the love of God. The love that sent his only son to give his life for our life. The love that sent his only son to draw us into this circle of love that he's always had for his son. It says, our unity says, stop, hey, over here, you got to see this. Uh, one, of our, one of our favorite places in town to get out for a walk has always been Radnor Lake. Which, you know, is not proprietary. <laughs> that puts us among a million other Tennesseans who love an excuse to get out there. Somehow the huge number of hikers at Radnor Lake doesn't do anything to scare away all the wildlife. Uh, we've seen some amazing stuff over there over the years. We've seen more deer than we can count, of course. I mean, we see those so much over there, you kind of yawn at them. We've seen turkeys doing all manner of things. We've seen owls at least a couple times. We've seen bald eagles swooping down to fish out of the lake. They've got nesting bald eagles there now with some little babies. We've seen turtles that are older than I am. We've seen otters swimming across the lake. Once we even saw a snake with its head sticking out of a hole in a tree. And you know how we spotted this wildlife most of the time? You know how we spotted it? Most of the time, we've gotten to see these amazing creatures because we walked up on a big group of hikers who stopped in the middle of the trail, all looking in the same direction. The hikers don't know each other. They're not the same age. They're not the same color. They're not the same body type. They got gear on from rival SEC teams, but there they'll be, all huddled up on the trail, all watching. And their unity, it catches our attention. 
Their unity is like an advertisement. Something to see here, guys. Stop. You got, you got to see it. You got to check this out. This is amazing. They're often not just like implying that. They're all actually often saying that. They're looking out from whatever they're watching to, to see the new hikers coming down. saying, like, hey, come over here. You got to see this. There's a snake in that tree. His head sticking out of the hole right in the middle of that tree. You got to see this. They're fishing. This is what Jesus wants for us. He's leaving his friends behind as much as he wants to be with them. Right now, it's intentional that he's leaving them behind. It isn't just that he's going to prepare a place for them. He's got to go through that so that they can come with him. But he's got work for them to do here. He's sending them back into the world just like his father sent him to begin with. And now when he's praying for unity, he's praying for what is a baked in part of this mission. How we're going to do the work he's called us to do depends on how we love one another. And our love for one another depends on our shared love for Jesus. He's leaving you and me here now. It hasn't come for us yet because he wants us fishing for new friends. He wants us constantly saying to anybody who will listen, hey, over here, look what we found. And right at the center of our ability to do what he's called us to is our unity as a church. Our unity will grab attention because it won't make sense unless there's something awesome that we're all looking at. Can you see that? Make them one so the world will know that you sent me and that you love them and anyone else who wants to get in on this just like you love me. Friends, the stakes of our unity are so high. When our unity as a church holds together, it is a striking, maybe our most powerful evangelistic tool. And when our unity falls apart, when our unity falls apart, it says basically, there's nothing to see here but what you can find anywhere else. Division just comes so easy. And here you'll find people who can't get along, people who put their interests in front of everybody else's, people who have things more important to them than whatever they have in common. Whatever they worship most, it isn't something they share. Moving on. The stakes of our unity could not be higher. Which leads me to the third and final question for us this morning. We've seen why unity matters to Jesus. Here's the question to leave you with. Does unity matter to us? Does unity matter to us? In a way, there's, there's not a single command to obey in this text. There's not even a word aimed in our direction. This is the son talking to his father recorded so that we could read it. But, but like every other part of God's word, it's recorded here to shape us. It is meant to call for something from us. And I'm convinced we're given this view right here that John saw it as important enough to include in his book. Because seeing him loving us fuels our love for him. And when you love somebody deeply who you know loves you deeply, well, then what they want is going to shape what you want. You can't be indifferent to anything that matters to that person. Does unity matter to us like unity matters to Jesus? I want to talk to you eye to eye for these last few minutes, just as your pastor. Does unity matter to us like it matters to Jesus? You know, one of the, 
one of the most important things about a local church is that it's a place where this unity shows up in real time among real people who have real lives, real sin, real needs, and therefore can really show the power of Jesus at work among them. I mean, in a way, Jesus is praying that all Christians from all times and all places would be one. And one day in heaven, we will be. When we see him as he is, we will all be drawn to him, to this central, beautiful, powerful force that we can't turn away from. There is a beautiful kind of unity we have with all Christians everywhere. But the kind of unity that that serves as an advertisement to people who haven't gotten in on it yet, the kind of unity that says, hey, over here, there's something you got to see. That only ever works with real people in a real place at a real time, burdened by real needs, struggling with real sins, but working real hard to stay united to Jesus together. You need a local church for what Jesus is praying for here. And the first promise we make when we join our church as members is that we will work and pray for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That's a quote from one of Paul's letters, but it is absolutely rooted right here in what Jesus prayed. We're promising when we join our church to to make our unity a personal responsibility, to make seeking unity in our church part of how we serve the church. So how can we, and by we, I mean every one of us, how can we make the unity of our church as important to us as it was and is to our Savior and our King? I think that'll mean, look, every one of us, as the primary, a primary way that we serve our church, working to protect our unity, to promote our unity, and to pray for our unity, just like Jesus did. What would it mean for us to make unity a central part of how we serve our church? It would mean that we protect it, we promote it, and we pray for it. Let me just give you some examples of each one. It would mean protecting our unity. It is a fragile thing in a fallen world like ours. It takes work to build it and work to protect it because none of us is in heaven yet. We don't see Jesus as he is yet. Our minds and our hearts aren't completely captured by him 24-7. Our heads are still all too easily turned by, by the things in this world that divide us from one another. So we have to work to protect our unity in Jesus. This might begin with how you curate what goes into your mind and your heart. Have you thought about that? Make sure you're careful about what you consume outside these walls with unity as your priority. You might think about the media that you consume having to pass through your unity filter before you're willing to let it all the way in. Are the things that you're reading and watching online making it easier or harder to stay unified with Christians that disagree with you? Here's another thing to think about on that. Are the things that matter most to you, measured by uh, concretely by the things you spend time working towards, the things that you daydream about, the things that you pursue online with your research and deal finding, the things that you plan for, those things that matter to you, are those things that you could easily talk about with somebody who lives on half of your annual income? Or someone who's two decades removed from you in age? 
If not, have you, have you thought about the fact that what you're focusing on in your mind and your heart may be threatening the unity that Christ prayed for and then died for? You can protect your, our unity by how you watch over your friends in our church too. I mean, maybe you discover that a friend has views about Jesus that are shifting over time. And maybe you're concerned that what you're hearing, it, it sounds like they may not be looking to him for the same things they once were. And if unity is your heartbeat like it is for Jesus, you'll love your friend enough to press into that, to try to, to try to look together to the Bible for answers to the questions they may be asking. Not to shut it down like a hammer, but to, but to, to press through that door so that you can be there with them as they're processing what they're processing and pull them to what the word tells us, to what the apostles have told us is true about Jesus. Or maybe you notice a friend that has some growing discontent or, or problem with somebody else that's not resolved. Now, if you're a natural conflict avoider like I am, your instinct might be to want to wait it out, you know, give it time. Sometimes patience like that comes really easy to me. <laughs> and maybe you can relate. Sometimes it could be a good thing to do, but, but chances are, friends, it would just be better to get after it, to help resolve it, to be a peacemaker like Jesus told us to be. Here's my point. The evil one who is alive and at work in this world, he loves to divide churches. He loves that. Divided churches are like blown out bridges or captured railways in wartime. Divided churches immobilize us in our mission. I mean, see, the evil one knows he can't do anything about our product line. <laughs> he can't do anything about the beauty of Jesus. Jesus just stays beautiful no matter what he does. But he can absolutely affect our delivery system for that beauty into the lives and hearts of those who don't know him yet. And he loves this. He has to settle for confusion, for obscuring that beauty, for slowing down that delivery system. And our church will grow and thrive when we all agree that we're just not gonna let him. That as members of our church, we're gonna be the early detection missile defense system for the church. All of you are that, did you know that? I mean, by the time problems bubble up to pastors, a lot of times it's too late to do anything about it. But you guys are like an army of early detection missile defense system out there. You're gonna hear and you can pounce on it. You can see that as part of how you serve the church to look for anything that's unresolved and to be part of bringing peace. Think about protecting unity as one of the main ways you serve this church. Let's think about promoting unity in the same way. I mean, after the difficulties of the last couple of years in our country and in churches around the country, we have been talking and praying a ton about that, that God would protect us from division. And when I look around our church right now, I am just overwhelmed with gratitude to him for answering so many of those prayers. I mean, it's remarkable to me that our unity has held the way that it has. Praise God for that. That's his work. But we have to focus not just on protecting unity against division, but, but also cultivating unity that doesn't come naturally. We want to make sure that all of us are proactive and creative as we can be in finding opportunities to draw our community together around Jesus. This is all hands on deck. That'll mean making time in your really busy schedule to include other people in your life. And then it'll mean being real strategic about who you're including in your life with that time that you've made available. 
You might consider just real practically doing a kind of audit of your dinner table. Is your dinner table a highlighter for unity? Does it include a range of people that don't really make sense apart from what you share in Christ? And at your dinner table, do you highlight the unity you have in Jesus by focusing on him? You might want to just make an experiment of this by inviting somebody over that you really can't imagine what you'd talk about for two hours and then talk about Jesus and see what happens. We can protect our unity, we can promote our unity, and we can work together to pray for unity, just like Jesus did. This is where I leave you. To me, the weight of this text, the thing I'm hoping lands on your shoulders from this short time considering it is, look how important this was to Jesus. He will be dead soon. It will be an agonizing road to that end. He already knows that. And he's praying that we'll be one. That's how precious this is to him. That's how central it is to his goals for his people on earth. There are few things that we could possibly pray for that compare with the stakes of this prayer. So friends, please, please pray for unity. Pray that the Lord will protect us from the sin and selfishness and all the ways that we could sabotage the good thing he's already built here among us. Pray that he'll keep us faithful to the gospel. That's the foundation for our unity. We want it to be clear and compelling and to draw more people in. Pray that it will be. And ultimately, when you pray for unity, to bring this full circle to the place that Jesus began in this prayer, you realize what you're praying for is that the Lord will glorify his son. That was Jesus' first request in this prayer, glorify your son. And it is the key to our unity as a church. When Jesus looks glorious to us, we are all drawn into him together. A couple weeks ago, I was at a, a, a party with some friends. We had a fire pit outside and it was cold. You know what happened? A bunch of dudes sat about as close as they could possibly get to each other to get close to that fire. We might have chosen other parts of the yard on a warmer night. We might not have chosen to sit quite so close to one another on a warmer night. But on that night, there was a fire and all of us were drawn into it. When Jesus prayed, glorify your son, he's saying, Father, make visible to everyone what you've given them in me. And when we pray for unity, that's what we're asking. Father, glorify your son so that we are all drawn to him and to, through him to one another. Pray that we will see what it is to have Jesus and that looking at him together, the unity in our church will grow and grow and grow. Let's pray that now. Father, we want to see Jesus get the credit he deserves. He is worthy. Would you use us to that end? We pray that you would make our church a place that, that anyone can get in on Jesus. A place with a magnetic witness that draws all people to him. We pray that you protect us from all that we might do to, to hinder that. And that you would encourage us to do everything we can to cultivate that. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and for his name's sake. Amen.